Few things are harder than the mission of raising your kids. At The Dad Project, we get experienced dads to reveal what's worked for them, offering practical, time-tested advice. Being a successful dad is tough, and we're here to help you get it done. Welcome to The Dad Project. This episode of The Dad Project is the second in a two-part series we're calling Adulting 101. In part two, Ashton Ellis discusses with a live audience the topic of financial adulthood and the things a head of household needs to consider when coming up with a financially viable plan to live, work, and raise a family in an urban center. Ashton is co-founder of The Dad Project. He and his wife have seven children. So this talk for me started about six months ago. I woke up one morning and realized I had not prepared for an obvious eventuality. Uh, we rent a home in Southern California. We were renting a townhouse before that. And the eventuality I wasn't preparing for was that the home was probably going to be sold at some point. And that's the phone call I got. Um, I actually missed a phone call from my landlord. I was out of state. And um, he said, hey, I should give me a call when you can. I thought, and, and I mean, kind of... <laughs> thinking this was going to come ever since I signed the papers, but he's been a really good guy and he still remains a good guy. Um, wonderful, actually, experience with him. So he's actually apologetic about it, but they're in their 80s and have health care needs and they need to sell the house. And if you've been paying attention to all of Southern California real estate, it's uh, doing quite well. Uh, so he accommodated us, let, let the kids, this was in April, let the kids, or let us uh, wait a few months to get the kids out of school. But it really uh, kind of was a domino uh, effect for me. Uh, and my wife. So, of course, you know, you think, okay, well, it's been four years since I've rented a house because uh, this guy been like said, very good to us. Um, didn't raise the rent every, every year, uh, which uh, was not something we negotiated. He just didn't want to do it. So I go out and I start looking, and I realize that for the size family I have, we have seven kids, and we had had three since we had lived there, I think, or we had just had one and then had two while we were there. So in my mind, I still need to stick out the you know, three-bedroom house. But I start looking at the number of people. My wife starts saying, well, actually, you know, we got a newborn probably need to have his own place, and then we got the two-year-old that's still in the crib, and really need a four-bedroom house. And by the way, with the backyard. Oh, sure, that makes sense. You know, she gives me all these reasons why, and uh, so I started kind of plugging away on Zillow and other things, looking for a house, and easily, within a commutable distance of my kid's school, we're talking, you know, at least a thousand, if not fifteen hundred dollars higher than what we were paying. Again, I don't know if I mentioned this, but my landlord had not raised the rent. So I was a little insulated from uh, what was going on around me. So, you know, I never stopped long enough to think about uh, what my number was for housing, uh, but it had been exceeded, I found out. Uh, basically, I just couldn't afford to do that. It was going to be roughly half my paycheck every month was going to go straight to housing before utilities, the gardener, you know, food, uh, those kind of things. So... We started looking around, trying to kind of figure out what we were going to do um, to get a good, to get something, even a good deal. And I wasn't getting called back. I initially thought it was because of the size family, but a friend of mine also has a large family said, no, that's not the problem. You're, you're not offering enough money. I said, what do you mean? I posted the, uh, the rent number. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. The way it works is you've got to be able to provide X amount of hundred dollars over that because you're probably bidding against other people. I said, well, I thought that's what you did for housing. She's like, this is housing. You're just not buying it. And I said, well, what do you do? Because she has, I think, five or six kids. She said, oh, we just offer 100 bucks more a kid on top. I said, really? She said, yeah, we go really, really low. We go really, really low housing. And then we start kind of building back up. I was like, well, that's not going to work with my wife. She's not you. 
So anyway, long story short, we kind of had this really interesting realization that, wow, we have not prepared for needing to you know, have the space that we need. And it's not just, you know, you can find housing in California, sure. Um, but we have some kind of some set criteria. We like, we like the school our kids are in. Um, I like having the commute that I have. Um, we have some other issues that are important to us. And uh, this was a good, like I said, wake-up call. Got a good deal, uh, house-sitting for some friends this year. We're really still trying to work through, uh, are we gonna be renters for life? Are we gonna try to put some money down for a house? How's it gonna work? So my topic is kind of the career and financial side of being a young father in a metro area. Uh, we've looked at places like Texas and Seattle and Phoenix, other places in the country, and I can tell you that if you're gonna live kind of in the urban core where a lot of the opportunities are, it's fairly similar across the board. Um, one of the great things about technology is you know the best or the top 10 cities in America, just like everybody else. <laughs> I have a colleague who works in Colorado Springs, and, he, and I congratulated him when it came across my newsfeed that, hey, the Springs are like the, the best place in America. America. And he said, don't tell anybody. <laughs> People are moving here for a decade. I can tell the difference, right? So, you know, there might be a, a great place in Raleigh, North Carolina. There might be, you know, Austin was the place 15 years ago when I lived there. Nashville is a, is a hot spot, but really it's not about finding a place where you can kind of go and um, forget about your problems financially because other folks can do the same thing or always be pressure. So kind of the point of this talk is the summary of the lessons I've learned thus far in my almost 12 years of marriage um, and kinds of things that I wish somebody had kind of told me, frankly, uh, when I was starting out in my career and also starting out with a, with a family. So I think the big idea, if I could, though, to get this across, this is not a lecture in victimhood, it's a lecture in opportunity. And I have a client that I dearly love and teaches me a lot more than I do for him, I think. But one of his lines is, everything in life happens right on time. So anytime that we're talking, a lot of, half of my client meetings with this guy, he's a former, he was actually a frogman, he wasn't a Navy SEAL, he was before the SEALs. Uh, just an incredibly interesting human being. Um, and then after he retired from the, the, the Navy SEALs, became an assistant public school principal. So he's got great stories. But his thing is, everything in life happens right on time. And I think this, pro I think this um, talk today, I think anything you're struggling with in life is happening right on time. It's, it's the time that you need to, to deal with it. So I'm going to give you three lessons that I think I've learned uh, to this point in my life. So number one, a father's most important business is his family. So one of the benefits I experienced of getting married young and having kids right away was seeing the connection between the money I made and the benefits they enjoyed. And I don't mean toys. I don't even mean the Southern California weather that I love dearly out here. Um, I'm talking about access to better people. And this really hit me when I was in grad school. We were on public assistance because you're making no money, uh, you're on you know, Medi-Cal or whatever. And I was stunned by the qualitative difference in certain doctors that my wife was seeing when she was pregnant. Or when one of my kids needed some speech therapy, the difference between you know, person A and person B. They're the same program, same system, but I was like, this person obviously cares about what they're doing. And they've gone above and beyond uh, what they need to be doing to be competent. And therefore, my child directly benefits. I mean, we've all had these experiences, right? When you talk to maybe your accountant or you talk to a lawyer, you talk to any professional. If I were to ask any one of you guys today, who would you want, if you were audited by the IRS, who do you want with, you know, um, either a tax attorney or a CPA backing you up? Or who would you, who would you want if you were unconscious in the hospital and making decisions about whether to pull the plug on you? Your, people are going to come to your mind. And we started finding those people. And I thought, how do I get access to these people? 
or the kindergarten teachers or physicians or whatever. And it was really kind of an awakening for me as a young father, like, this is why you need money. I mean, maybe not you know, tons of it, but this is a benefit. Otherwise, you're just kind of shooting in the dark as far as what you're going to be getting. And it, it may not matter to me because I'm fairly young and healthy, right? I don't really need a lot. My kids do. My wife does, right? So that was something that I thought was really important, access to better people. And, and not for me, but people I'm responsible for. We found out that competence and confidence in physicians and other experts are not things that the cheapest plans always guarantee. Education was even trickier for us. Uh, cost doesn't always equal quality. One of the, the life hacks that we had heard about was, hey, you better to be the poorest family in a better you know, uh, neighborhood because you get to the better school districts. Okay, well, we tried that game. I was in grad school, we chose to live in one city, not the other, um, paid higher rent for it. My kids got into a better public school. Um, I went to public and private schools. I have uh, great things to say about both. Uh, I think both of them you know, have limitations. So it's not a knock on public school, I'm about to say. But when our kids were entering elementary school, um, we were pretty happy with the teachers. Um, the curriculum was kind of uninspiring, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't anything morally, you know, you know, pre-K, K, and first grade that I was concerned about. The biggest concern after the first quarter were a lot of the other families in the school. Um, they were incredibly dysfunctional, uh, and just in any measure you want to uh, have. So much so, my wife and I found ourselves having to turn down invitations for playdates uh, with our kids, and then having to do a lot of rehabilitation in the evening about what we wanted their normal to be, and how to try to explain this in a, in a kind but truthful way about why our lives were ordered differently. And this was really becoming kind of an issue trying to think through the next few years um, how we were going to navigate this with our children. I was telling this to a friend of mine, and he said, well, you know, picking a school is like paying for your kids' friends. I never thought about that. Picking a school is, is like paying for your kids' friends. And when I pushed on that, what does that really mean? He said, well, your kids are nice right now, you know, six, seven, eight years old, but very rapidly they're going to start to look to their peer group as much or more than they're looking to you for what they should think about things, how they should live. And what you want to try to do is put them in an environment where they're going to be around kids who are in the same formation or very similar to what you're forming them in. So that their peer group is the normal that you're looking for. It's not just mom and dad. And that radically changed how we looked at schools, right? I mean, so again, not knocking magnet schools, blue ribbon schools, private schools, whatever. But my wife has a, a phrase she likes, which is basically, if you're trying to find a school for your kids, go watch uh, Dismissal at the end of the day. Just watch the kids walking out, watch their faces, watch how they talk, watch how they dress. If it's something you like, that's gonna be your kid. In one year's time, your kid's gonna look, act, and think like those kids, because that's who they're around. So it was really kind of mind-blowing, but at any rate, you know, um, with that in mind, we, we changed schools. We moved, we actually moved for a school. That's uh, very affordable, but in a high cost area. And the four years we've been there have been some of the, I think, the best four years of my kid's life so far. Because if you, if you think about it from a father's standpoint, best hours of your kid's day are not with you. They're at school. I used to get annoyed by this. <laughs> it's like, they're tired, I'm tired. You know, when we, get, when, we get, when we get together for dinner, and I looked at my wife one day, I was like, why is it that the people I care most about I get to spend the least amount of time with? I got to be on the phone with people I, I usually don't see because I work remotely for my job. I work for you know, one of these clients across the West. 
You know, I've got these wonderful little people that are running around, but I'm not in touch with them, right? I, you know, who, who am I hiring out there? And eventually I got to this idea that I'm, I'm running a business, right? Yeah, I came to see teachers, physicians, really anybody who acts as a surrogate parent to my child, right? The person who's responsible, the adult in their life when I'm not there, they're a vendor that I've hired, right? So if, if my primary responsibility for forming my children that is my primary responsibility. If that's what it is, then the people that I put my kids in contact with are the ones I validate, right? I mean, this is why that your kids should respect their teacher on a very fundamental level, because mom and dad have said they speak for me for math or you know, English or whatever it's going to be. But there's also more than that. These are the people, these vendors, service providers, are contributing to my family's culture. They're forming my kids, right? And my kids share my last name. So they are representative of my family. So I want us all to be on the same page. And I better be sure these vendors are saying and doing things that deepen the culture I want my family, not undermining it. And, you know, this really kind of hit me all the way down. Um, we, we had our kids in, you know, good schools. Um, and we like most of the teachers, like I said. But they're just, the more I got to know certain people and the way they approach things, like, yeah, that's different. I don't think so. That's not helpful. I'm having to kind of draw too much of a distinction there for my kid. I don't want them to undermine the teacher. But what's more important is the, the culture I think they should have. So as I grew in my fatherhood, I saw the benefits and drawbacks of you know, different options for education, for uh, health care. And I started to really feel the tension between saving for retirement and paying for your kids to have a flourishing life now. I mean, if you have enough kids, somebody's going to have an issue, right? Somebody's going to need... Uh, more dental work than, than the average bear. Someone's going to have speech therapy issues. Someone's going to have uh, a little bit of a muscle impediment. And I love the fact that there are so many wonderful programs and opportunities available to really help everybody not just live a normal life, but a good life. Um, but I'm also bewildered from time to time on how I'm going to pay for just some of those things. You know, and it's really our responsibility as dads to take that very seriously. This is not an, an, a knock on the public service system, but you know, a lot of places when it's their money they're spending, just like when it's our money they're spending, when it's their money, they're going to look at your kid and say, oh, they, they're adequate. Yeah, but he can't tie his shoes, he can't pronounce R's and S's, and he'll never be able to give a public presentation. And he can't zip up his pants. Do you think that's going to be a successful adult? Well, but he's adequate. He's not as bad as the other kids are. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to say he's fine. And he could be in the general population. Yeah, but you would never call on this kid to give a talk. Well, well, but I need him to be able to do that, right? He's got to support a family. You know, he's got to be able to support himself. And whatever impediments that he's got, it's my job as a dad to help him with that. You know, it's great for backpacking and all this other stuff for you know, guys to want to get out with their kids. But, man, sometimes I think we miss the basics. You know, are, are my kids really at or above just for the basic level on reading comprehension? You know, are they not flabby? Are they getting out and getting exercise? Speech therapy, are their teeth straight? You know, there's this great start. Mother Teresa was working with um, uh, this high school kid, you know, from a well-to-do family. Uh, you know, and I guess he'd been doing some sort of service project with her. And she was getting a little more concerned about him as the days were going on because he had a huge acne problem. And finally, she just called the parents and said, I think, I think you know, Johnny should come home. Why is he not doing really well? Is he not like lepers? Oh, no, no, he's doing fine with all that. And he can get his face cleaned up because he's having, he's, he, I can tell he's self-conscious about it. And you can take care of that. Well, why is that important? Well, because this is who he is as a human person. We want to, we want to help his dignity. 
we want to help us self-esteem. So it's great that he's doing these wonderful things for other people, but you know, don't miss that. And I can tell that's a good examination of conscience I have with my own children who have you know little issues that you know are, are going to be not cheap to fix, but but are fixable. Um, and like I said, this isn't a lesson victimhood. You know, it's helped me. I've been extremely grateful for having all my kids because it's helped me grow in the determination not to get comfortable with my professional situation. And I think there's a big temptation to like, find a good job. You're good at it. You know, it kind of meets all your basic needs and you just keep kind of rock and roll, right? You know, you've got your subscriptions that you like, you've got your um, schedules that you like. Um, and as, as adult men, we don't really need that much to be happy, but that also doesn't really take into consideration what our wives might need uh, or what our kids might need. So on the one hand, uh, don't be comfortable, but I try to balance it with not letting myself lie to myself that saying good motivations can turn into an excuse for being a workaholic dad. Right? I'm always doing it for my kids. I'm always doing it for my kids. Well, you're, but your kids will know your name. You know, I remember being in law school and a, uh, Attorney came to give us a talk, and she said, she kind of choked. I, I didn't think it was funny. She said, oh, yeah, I have a um, picture of my house on my, my desk, so I know what it looks like during the daytime. And, and she didn't laugh, but everybody else did. It was kind of like reverse jokes. You know, I don't know if she was just confessing <laughs> to us. but And so a bunch of lawsuits, like, I don't want to work there. <laughs> but that's, again, you know, we don't want to tell her. Whatever her reasons were, I'm sure she had some. Uh, we don't want to dip into that. So I started a pattern of looking for jobs that would increase my compensation, but not uh, take away my access to my kids. And that's been hard, but I think it's been worth it. And it's, it, you know, it's hard because it's not a cost-free decision. You know, I've turned down a job that would have required a relocation and a lot of travel. And the back-to-back was something that my wife and I didn't think we could handle. And then, you know, right now I'm not pursuing opportunities that might get me to my financial goals, but I think I'm pretty much going to be relegated to a weekends-only father. And my kids are just too young for that. You know, maybe when they get to college or something like that, if they're doing really good as senior high school. But you know, right now we've got a lot of kids in, in elementary school, and I just don't think it's good for me to be a weekends-only dad right now. So in my little corner of the world, I, I try to emphasize what's best for my family and have my career support that as much as humanly possible. Um, I've had to pivot a couple of times into different things, but you know, I don't even really want to get going into a certain path if I can kind of see that. Look, to be a top performer in this industry, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, wow, that's really incompatible. Well, if you're not trying to be tops, why are you trying to do it? I mean, if you're trying to be mediocre, you're basically trying to fire yourself in a certain amount of years. So if, you know, if we look at things realistically and say, what do the top people do in that one, and we don't see it compatible, I think we need to think about that. Lesson two, there's a difference between a man's vocation and his occupation. Okay, so among some dads, I hear comments about having a vocation. You know, it's, it's, kind of, it's Latin, so it comes to the idea of a calling to work in a certain type of job or industry. You know, the idea takes root that the job is essential for his existence. And the danger I think I see practically for a lot of dads is that their relationship with their wife and their kids has to be lived in relation to that job. Right? So everything gets subordinated to the job because that and the way he's thinking about it, is what he's here to do. That's his calling. And I think it's upside down. I think our vocation is our marriage. Our vocation is to help the wife and the kids be better people because they were in our family. And that's my responsibility. My job is my occupation. That's the thing that I use to help those people 
and myself become the best versions of ourselves. So I came to this conclusion probably about five or six years ago on a walk with one of my friends. I was really, it was a summertime situation. I was in between, uh, actually I was in between jobs. I had a job, I had a career path, and it, um, I was very happy with it. But it wasn't providing the level of stability that I thought my family needed. I really, really wanted. I was kind of looking X amount of years in the future. I was like, this is just not, it's good right now. The jumps in, in uh, salary are good, but there's going to be a, a pretty low plateau uh, for a while. And it just doesn't seem to be in keeping with what my goals are for my family. So I had a job offer come up that was going to require a pretty big break with what I've been doing. What I was struggling with was this vocation idea. I've been thinking, wow, I've been preparing, preparing for five years kind of in this type of work. And I really feel like I'm good at it. It makes sense. It makes sense for what I, I'm good at. Um, and it uses my gifts. And I was really struggling. But this other job did everything I had been praying uh, for an answer for. And sometimes you get the answer that you need, but you don't want it, right? And so then you go talk to a friend. So I was talking to my friend, and he just, I, remember, I can remember distinctly, uh, we're at Angel Island on a hike up in the Bay Area, and he just stops and looks at me and he's like, I don't think it matters what you do, as long as you do it with a spirit of service and a lot of love. And if you can't be happy just doing that with all these other things your job does, this potential job does, you're not going to be happy. And pretty much... That cinched it for me. And it really, really got me thinking that, yeah, if this job answers all the issues that I needed to answer, still provides me access to my kids and wife, provides with a better income, good career prospects, but it doesn't, you know, in one sense, make my heart sing, well, maybe I need to start humming a different tune, right? Maybe if I'm doing the things that are the most important and doing them well, I can grow to be happy with that, and I have. So in my opinion, a married man's vocation is to provide, protect, and form his family. His job is the means for him to meet these responsibilities. And finally, the third lesson. In work and family life, you pay now or you pay later. So not long ago, I had lunch. I get to travel a lot with my current job. I get to set my schedule. So I get to kind of have these pockets of time with friends I haven't seen in a while. I had lunch with a friend in grad school. And he and I were joking about our adulting uh, epiphany. And basically, both of us are trying to be excellent what we're doing, and we're having kids, trying to maintain a really good relationship with our wife, and finding it surprisingly very difficult to do all these things well, and well at the same time. Um, It was nice to be able to kind of break bread with somebody who was uh, experiencing the same difficulty, but then laughing, obviously, kind of almost how silly it sounds to say it out loud, right? But I think we need friendships, we need mentors, we need fellow travelers on these kind of things. And so he's one of those guys for me. You know, it feels like there's no breaks, right? There's no time for yourself. Uh, there's no time to recharge. Uh, it's tempting to let one area of your life go slack for a while, promising yourself to come back to it. And I think for dads, for professional men, the temptation is to say, I'm just going to go all in on work. And I'm going to make you know, my mark here so that I can get to a level that I can ratchet back a little bit. Um, you know, buy the house, get the kids into school, you know, take care of the wife. Um, and then I'll come back and I'll, I'll either, you know, repair those relationships with vacations or, you know, whatever the thing's going to be. And I think one of the things that's how I've had to work through the last few years is um, an idea that Malcolm Gladwell popularized, the 10,000 hours. So if you're not familiar with it, this idea, there's been some research done. I think I've seen other research that pushes back a little bit. But the basic idea, I think, is probably pretty true, 
if you're gonna be excellent at something, you gotta get 10,000 hours, real hours, into whatever it is you're trying to do to be a master. And they profile people like Olympic athletes, top craftsmen, business people. Uh, there's some great anecdotes about Bill Gates, I believe it was, and some others. And not only do you need 10,000 hours to be a master, but how do you dominate your industry? Well, Gladwell, in this book at least, tries to show that they were able to get their 10,000 hours faster than their cohort. So if I get to where, I, where, where we're all trying to go, we're all smart and motivated, but if I get there first, I'll, I win, right? I start the company, I set the rules, I've made the money, I've cornered the market. So I think that there's a big, you know, almost natural tendency to want to do that. We want to be excellent with our work. We can kind of see maybe once we get our skills and our credentials that, okay, there's a goal I can reach in. And if I just put a little more time than the guy next to me, I'll get there first. I'll make partner first. I'll start the first business. Um, you know, I'll saturate the market. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do as much as you can, but I, I would just say it can't be at the expense of our family. It cannot be expense of our wife and our children. So my buddy and I kind of agreed to keep each other accountable on us. We're both trying to be excellent in multiple spheres. You know, these 10,000 hour guys, it's like if you're trying to, you know, move from point A to point B, well, they take one part of point A and go like this, kind of a diagonal. But they've left everything else. It's almost like they just cut their leg off or just, you know, kept it over here while they kept moving forward with one. What he and I are trying to do is very deliberately move all of us, all of ourselves towards our goal, right? Work and family. And that takes time. Now, I think that what's, what's important about this is that we've gotta be okay with making progress in one area. Um, instead of making progress in one area at an accelerated pace, we're moving all areas of our life forward a bit slower, but still with intensity. And that's a hope that comes out in this talk is that I'm not saying that you gotta throw up your hands and give up. I'm not saying there's no way to do it. It's just kind of a tortoise in the hair when it comes to something like this. We've got to be intense workers, smart workers. There's a lot of people that work hard and probably work with people like this, but they put in 10 hours, but they work six. I mean, effective hours, right? I mean, they may, they may be at the office for 12 hours in a day, but how much do they actually work? And we've got to be the kind of people that when we put in eight, we, put, we actually get out nine or 10 because we're just working that much more effectively. And that's where I think our professional um, goals need to incorporate those ideas. How can I work more effectively? How to work through people? How do I learn how to manage and delegate? And how do I learn to discern what's really important from what would be good to get done but not essential? So Peter Drucker uh, is a kind of management guru um, and he has this book called The Effective Executive and one of his rules in there I try to live by is first things first and second things not at all. And this is something he observed a lot of high-performing people do. You know, they make a list every day of what was really important for them to get through. But they kind of have these in subcategories, like your first priority, second priority, third priority. If they got nothing but their first priority done every day, it's a great day. So what happens to second and third? Well, they almost never get done. But why are they really second and third? This doesn't mean you don't do important things, right? But if you've got your hierarchy in the right order, then you at least are getting done the big things. I mean, I think sometimes we can fall into this trap of trying to just answer that email in two seconds or whatever it is. And we've worked feverishly for several hours, but we really haven't accomplished anything of substance. I mean, not something that really moves the ball forward. And those are prudential judgments we have to make. But we want to be taking that same kind of care both in our work and our family life. So at home, I think it means taking a deep interest in the wife and kids. I try and struggle to have a consistent day night with my wife. 
I'll be the first to tell you that I'm, I'm pretty bad at it. Um, part of it's finances, part of it's time. You know, it takes a special babysitter when you call them and say, well, there's seven of them. <laughs> um, only, only two in diapers, I think you can handle it. Most of them be in bed before seven o'clock, you know. So that makes it a little difficult. But what do we do to compensate? Well, we stay up and have a glass of wine after the kids go to bed. Really, um, I think most of you with wives would agree with this. Your wife just really wants time. Get a good bottle of wine, right? Get the kind of thing she likes to go with it. Try to make it as much of a restaurant or whatever she likes as you can. But do that. Um, and I think you'll see a lot of benefits from that. There are a couple of things I, I want to talk about with um, kids. Paying now or paying later. So when you have seven kids, uh, it's really hard to get to one of the questions that somebody asked that was really good. How do you give individualized time to each of your children? Um, we came up with a system in my house that each kid has a day of the week they get 15 minutes with dad. I know this kind of sounds probably at first blush like, oh, that's crazy. You know, it's, it almost sounds overly scheduled, 15 minutes. Well, it's a soft 15. But the idea is that when I come home, I've got probably 15, maybe 20 minutes, depending on, you know, kind of what's going on at the house, but they get one-on-one time with dad. If the weather's good, we go on a walk. If not, we go into my home office. There's two rules about time with dad. One, it's exclusive. No other siblings are allowed. And unfortunately, mom's not even allowed, right? No, she can't pop in and ask a question, you know, so that's why we go on a walk. So it's really important that it's exclusive. The other thing is that we have to share either a glass of juice or some candy. And the kid gets to pick. Most of them want candy. Um, you know, chocolate or whatever. And it creates this immediate bond that we're doing something really fun together. And I have been bowled over by how open my kids are with that time. And also how patient they are when it's not their day. Oh, I'm on Thursday, right, Dad? I was on a business trip this week. I came back. I was leaving on Monday morning, come back on Thursday afternoon. And my Thursday kid will call him. Last thing he says to me, not goodbye, not I love you. Bring me back in time for the Thursday chat. He's six. <laughs> he knows his day, right? Um, my daughters actually care more about what kind of candy they're going to have and what we're going to talk about, but, you know, but it's good. You build this five minutes. So what do you do when you're on the road? Well, the telephone can be a wonderful thing. One thing my wife has me do when I call is she says, well, whose day is it? Well, it's, you know, this kid on Monday. Okay, we well, talk to him first. So he gets, he gets his time. If I'm at my hotel, we'll do FaceTime. If I'm driving, we'll just do it over the phone. And I'm just listening, right? Sometimes I'll have something I want to kind of ask them about or chat about, but really I just want to have a relationship of friendship with my kids so that they're comfortable talking to me now about fairly minor things and hopefully in the future about somewhat major things. I, I think you guys should really think about that. You know, if you have to travel, uh, even if it's infrequently, uh, try to take your family culture with you. One of the things that I was surprised about is my kids sit <coughs> just as attentively, especially over FaceTime, to me reading a book that we're working on as a family, uh, when I'm 2,000 miles away, as they go on, I'm on the couch next to them. Um, they, they just, they're like, well, hey, I guess Dad's still here. You know, I can see him, he's reading. You know, there's a copy of The Hobbit, or whatever it is. And we do the voices, I have no idea what the guy in the hotel room next to me thinks is going on, but, um, you know, lock in, lock and load, right? So, um, kids love what we're doing. Another thing that we've done, probably in the last six months, and I have to give my wife all the credit for this, is that we, we do this thing, we don't really watch a lot of TV, but we're kind of having this dead time for like 45 minutes to an hour between baths and dinner and you know reading a book or something like that. And uh, we're trying to figure out what can we do to help our kids because we, we figured out that you know that 45 minutes is the only time every day of the week that we're all together. 
That's the only time consistently in our life and a half together to form our kids as a group. So we've gotten pretty good about the individual thing, at least as good as we are right now. But what can we do to maximize that? So we call it get together, you know, because it's pretty easy. We're going to get together. Uh, we're not very creative. But what we do is we give the older kids an opportunity to get up there and recite a poem that they're learning at school or tell us a funny story from um, school or from, you know, some of their friends or something they've read. Most of our kids are readers, thank goodness. I let the younger kids try to ape that. They pantomime or they do Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. They're just kind of silly. But one of the things that we're trying to work on is getting them more comfortable uh, speaking in public. You know, we'll give them a couple cues about eye contact, how to greet people. We, we might even have, turn one of our get-togethers into some of the manners we think are missing. We'll do some funny role-play with them, you know, how to shake a hand, how to look somebody in the eye, how to open a door, more importantly, how to close a door without killing people. Uh, if you have small children, you know, there's a lot of slamming going on, and one of finger that might get, you know, almost severed. Um, well, these are all these little things that we see at um, maybe offices or with our colleagues or maybe in college when you were there, and you thought, how does that person not know to do X? Well, they probably weren't taught, right? I mean, they didn't have a good example. Maybe they didn't pay attention. They weren't directed on how to practice that. So we're, we're trying to pick that up. If you, you know, let's say in the airport, you see something, say something. Well, if you see something in your kids you don't like, mention it to your wife, and then come up with a way to curate that in family life. Our get-together has been really helpful for them. I'm not saying everybody walks out of one get-together and has does everything perfectly or virtuously. But I am saying it gives us an opportunity to talk directly about that, and not in a correcting way, but in a way that's trying to help them practice it. Make it lively and fun. But why go to all this trouble, right? Because like you, I've heard the stories and I've read the studies. The most important thing for a child's development is their relationship with their father. Right? I mean, the U.S. government has tried for several years to have traction with this fatherhood initiative, um, but they have other forces in society that want to make fathers, um, you know, optional. Well, they're not. If you look at social science, you look at people's lives, relationship with dad is pretty much the most important thing for whether they're going to go to church, whether they're going to stay married, whether they're going to be a good worker, or they're going to be a person who contributes or someone who can't. And we want to have kids that are self-sufficient, not just for themselves, but they can provide for other people. Right? Men and women of character that can do this well. So just like with clients or colleagues or bosses, more quality touches that you have with your wife and kids, the better the relationship. You know, our kids want us and they need us. And if we're not accessible, they're going to find a surrogate and they're going to suffer. And that's one of the things, going back to the stuff about um, you know, teachers being um, basically hired vendors to help you be, be a good dad, help you raise good, a good family. Anybody who's in touch with your kids has, needs to be that. But we don't want to outsource anything than, than um, the minimum, basically. I, I can't have a full-time job and homeschool my kids. If I could, I would. But since I can't do that, I'm going to find the best darn people I could possibly find to teach them and form them in the way I think they should be done. And to make the sacrifices and make the job change necessary to have, make that happen. But this doesn't mean that work has to take a backseat. All of us have the same 24 hours a day. And access to the internet and social media make it really, really difficult to engage in what people like Cal Newport call it, deep work. Right? That's substantive work that when we do that for the day, we know that we did a good job. We know that we pushed the ball forward in the unique thing that we've been hired to do at, at the job. So cutting out distractions is critical, and even from family. So I, I have a job, I work remotely, I've been working from home for over 10 years, and about six months ago, I just couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, we always have some small kids, wife might need something, I'm hearing crying going on, I know logistics just got fouled up. Um, so 
you know, it's hard to sit there and go like, well, I'm in the cone of silence right now. I'm making money. <laughs> I can't be bothered, right? Um, I, I'm not, I'm just telling you, I'm not strong enough to make that, that comment. I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I know exactly what it's like when they're screaming like that. Oh, that sounds like someone just broke their hand. Oh, the babysitter's sick. Now Lauren can't make it over here. So I'm too distracted. And my wife, as she normally does, had the, had the bright idea. She looked me right in the eye one day and she said, you're complaining too much about being here. I think you need to rent office space. I was like, wow, I'm thinking we can afford that. She's like, we can't not afford it. <laughs> so so I, I looked around, found a, a single office rental about 15 minutes from my home. Uh, I started about a month and a half ago, and it's been wonderful. You know, results may vary, right? I don't know what your situation is. I'm not saying you can't work from home. I'm just saying with the amount of space we need at the house for where kids need to be, having to share a wall with small children when you're on the phone with a client is not my idea of a productive meeting. So for me, this has been a game changer. I'm actually able to go and get my effective hours done, be completely immersed in work. And then when I come home, it's game time, right? So I'm ready for my third shift. Or as I used to you know, say in college football or you know, football teams, you know, they got fourth quarter, right? They got the four fingers up. That's when you walk through the door and hopefully you're somewhat sated and energized from a good day of work, or at least you've known you've tried to do all the things you should do and you come and contribute to the family. So to conclude, as I wrap up, um, I just want to encourage you to think, and we'll talk more about this at the end, some resolutions for work and family life. You know, I was going to title this talk, How to Leave a Good Legacy, or Leaving the Right Legacy, but it really just comes down to this. I hope we agree that we want our wives and kids to be better people for having known us and been loved by us. That's it, right? When I'm on my deathbed, I want my wife and my kids to be better people because they knew me and they were loved by me. So it's not just my example, but my love. And how can I be sure, or at least you know, moderately sure that that's actually gonna happen? Well, it's concrete steps. What do I do every day to try to achieve that goal? So in family life, it makes sense to set goals for the kids' growth and virtues. Regularly scheduled check-ins. That's a lot of what my chat is to my kids. Trying to remind them what the word virtue is, maybe the one I need to work on right now. Asking how are you know are they helping out kids at school? Are they being respectful of their teacher? Are they noticing about their siblings that could they could help with? How how they treat mom? Does mom seem like she's not feeling well? Uh, what can I do to help? Like Kirby was talking about. In professional life, I think it's good to have performance reviews. And I'm really kind of saying this that that's what you might hear this in certain circles, an examination of conscience. That's what a performance review is, right? It's knowing that you're going to have to be accountable on some small level um, for what you're doing with your time. Right? I mean, none of us have Big Brother over our shoulder, hopefully, uh, looking at us 24 7. Um, but we do have to have check ins to make sure that we're doing the right things. Uh, if you don't have one at work, I would say ask for one. It'll blow your boss's mind. Um, and if he won't give you one, then pose one on yourself. Because at least you'll be able to show when you're going to get that next job where they actually care what you do with your time. You can show the value that you've added and how you've grown. And this is really important for guys who work in gig jobs, I think, and consultants, which I did for a long time. You don't have a boss, right? Your client's just either happy or they're not happy. Um, but you've got to be able to show at some point to a client what you're doing to add value and growth and how you're growing as a profession. We don't want to risk losing out on raises and promotions because we don't take this stuff seriously. You know, we're in a laid-back culture here in Southern California, and I think a lot of American culture is pretty laid-back. But I also think it's kind of hypocritical. People don't tell you what's important anymore. They don't act like it, they don't talk like it, they don't dress like it but we're still held to the same accountability standards 
that the older generation was, it just seemed more clear, I think. So we want to, I think, have this interior tone that we're kind of constantly raised with ourselves, with our work, with our family. Um, because if we're losing raises and promotions that we could get and we should get, then we're really robbing our family of the things they need to flourish. So if you're like me and it's hard to kind of constantly feel like you're promoting yourself or asking for stuff, fine. Do it on behalf of your wife and kids. You know, your wife, if she's got a few kids, probably needs some more help cleaning the house or she goes insane. Um, you know, she might need somebody to come watch the kids while she goes and grocery shops, right? That might cost money. So we need to be pushing for these things. I operate a franchise, right? So well, the thing I do is try to provide uh, the resources to have the best and happiest wife and children in Los Angeles County. We're going to go regional so we can go local, but you know, that's <laughs> my number one client's my wife and my kids. What do they need to be their best? And how can I provide what they need uh, with the work I do? My number two boss, my number two client is my boss. I try to ask myself, and this might be helpful for guys here, how do I make my boss happy? Right? Make him happy. I'm not talking about, you know, like little gifts or whatever. Like, what are they told us they want us to do? I am routinely amazed at colleagues who do not want to accept what the boss has asked us to do. They do other things. Things that seem like they might work, but they're not what we were asked to do. You know, what's most important to him or her, and how do I over-deliver in these areas? How do I become the kind of person for my boss that when I think of, man, if I was in the pickle, I'd want that guy or that girl? Well, that's the way I want to be with my boss. I want to be the right-handed reliever coming in in the ninth inning. You know, if the game's on the line, I want to be the guy he's calling. I'm going, oh, you know, he's kind of got that thing, and it's never really available. It's not really done. Really work hard. I'm not really sure what he's doing. No, I want to be the guy that they, they call on. Do I have a game plan for identifying and mastering skills I need to move up? And finally, I, I think a great question is, how do I make it easy for my boss, or my clients, if you will, to reward me for my performance? Right? How is it just kind of easy for them? I mean, that may be a, a, a stingy person, who knows? But my point is, is that to a reasonable person, how to be like, well, of course I'm going to pick this guy more. Of course I want this guy on my team. And let's do that, right? And we can kind of modify the question, what would that look like for a, a well-formed kid to be able to say in their mid-20s or 30s, man, I'm so glad my dad's the way he is. I really appreciated this that he taught me and this experience that we went on together and, you know, whatever the thing's going to be. What would it take for my wife to say something like that? How does my wife feel like the best, the most loved wife in L.A.? We'll start, we'll start with a little, you know, and I'm happy to compete with you. So let's, you know, these are, these are the kind of things I think as friends we can really help each other grow in. So, like I said, I don't have it all figured out. These are just some lessons I think I've learned. And um, as we go through our life as fathers and husbands, I think we want to see our jobs as really important, things that can really help actualize the best parts of ourselves, but always in service to other people. And in the order of charity, it always starts with our wife, then our kids. And if we're not taking care of them, making sure they can flourish, then I think we have to reach out. Hey, thanks for listening to The Dad Project. If this talk was valuable to you, please go to our website at dadproject.net and make a voluntary one-time or recurring donation to help support our operations. Any amount helps. Catch you next time at The Dad Project.